All right, we're in our series uh, in Malachi, When the Lights Went Out. And why we've called it that is because Malachi is a prophetic book. It was the last book of the Old Testament. And then you have what's called the 400 years of silence. There was not another word uh, given until that guy named John the Baptist showed up. And so we've been in Malachi. We're in chapter 2. You can take your Bibles and look there. Let's just do a brief review. This is, was particularly for the priests, uh, but it was for the nation as a whole. But what we found out is that they were divorcing their wives and they were marrying foreign women. And part of that was just because they could. And part of that was trying to find this bigger expression, this better kick, so to speak. And what we said is that the foreign women brought their gods with them. And I mentioned last week that when you watch TV, just always remember that TV brings their gods with them. When our kids were little, um, we used to watch different shows and different commercials. And I would say, that's a lie. And drive them nuts. Dad, you're wrecking the show. Dad, you're wrecking the, you know. But Kayla just came back to me a couple weeks ago and says, you know what, Dad? That stuff you always used to point out, that's really true. There are a lot of lies there. I said, ha, chalk one up for Dad. All right, Awesome. <laughs> But see if you, one of the fun ways to do it is just see if you can identify the lies when you're watching a show that's sent out and pointed out your children. It's a great teaching tool. They'll hate it, but they'll remember it. So, but they, were, they brought their gods with them. And the big part we were trying to emphasize that God is a covenant-keeping God. And as such, he is faithful. Uh, one of the best expressions we know about that uh, in terms that mirrors that kind of faithfulness, we said last week, is marriage. We talked about the need to be faithful in marriage because uh, God is a covenant-keeping God. We are to be a covenant-keeping people. All right? And as such, we're to be faithful also. That faithfulness is one of the hallmarks of a Christian. Uh, being faithful to God, being faithful to each other, being faithful to what uh, yourself in terms of what God's called you to is a, a really powerful thing. And we find in Malachi, at this particular stretch, God was not listening or answering their prayers. Right? And they're wailing and weeping. Oh, Lord, why have you left? You know, that drama scene. And they're like, how come you don't hear us anymore? We, we come, we pray. And, and God said, because you're, you're doing this stuff. And the two pictures of, that God has used to emotionally identify us with him is one husband... Right? We are the bride of Christ. And the second picture is that of Father. Our Father who art in heaven. Abba, Father. Those are the two biggest pictures. So of course it would make sense that Satan in his attempts to undermine and, and destroy the church would go after those two very pictures. Right? And, uh, and so we talked about that last week. So then in Malachi 2.16 we'll pick it up where we left off last week, and it says, For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Let's look at this again. Notice the phrase, covers his garment with violence. Uh, we live in the myth of what I would call the polite divorce. Hey, we're best friends. We get along. We just... Um, couldn't make it work. We have irreconcilable differences. I always go, I laugh. I'm sorry, it just cracks me up. Duh, irreconcilable differences. Opposites marry each other. What did we think? 
Every marriage is irreconcilable. Right? I mean, think about it. Think about your marriage, Pam and I. The longer we go, we're like, man, we're really different. Not just kind of different. And, and it's like, you thought, did you ever think that when you got married, you'd get more like each other? <laughs> Hasn't that been fun? And, and God works through that. That's the power of God working through that. And so we have to recognize that. But God, this polite divorce thing, you don't have to look very far behind the curtain. I suppose I'm more sensitive to it than most simply because it shows up in my office all the time. But it doesn't take long to run into the anger and outright violence that exists in many divorces. Um, We would call them an ugly divorce. It gets pretty heated over whose is what's and what's fair and you're throwing me under the bus, which is a modern term for greed. Right? You ever see couples get greedy after it starts breaking up? And who's going to end up with what? Here's what happens. Think through this sequencing with me. When a covenant is broken, covenants are built on what? Trust. Right? Covenants are built on trust. So when a covenant's broken, then trust is broken. When trust is broken, everything comes under suspicion. You start suspecting things you never would have dreamed. Why are they making that call? Why did they walk out the door? What's going on? It starts going like that. When everything is suspicious, I must then put enormous energy into defensive tactics. I've got a rear guard. I've got to protect my interests. It is not what will happen that is necessarily what I have to defend against. It's what might happen that I have to have defenses erected for. And it becomes, in a sense, a mini-arms race. The escalation effect is amazingly swift. I've mentioned this before and it bears repeating. The one who's planning the divorce knows this. In an effort to manage the results, is often two, three years ahead of the other partner. The other partner is often caught totally stone cold flush. Uh, what? I, do, can we go to counseling? Can we, and, but the other person has already put all the tracks and thought it through logically so that they can have the exit plan that they want. The other person finds them uh, finds themselves amazingly um, overwhelmed. It's already too late. It's an absolute culture shock. They've been bushwhacked. And they never knew it hit them. I've had people sit in my office just looking absolutely dazed Deer in the headlights like, what the heck just happened to me? Never saw it coming. Basically, it's treachery. Let's call it for what it is. It's a violation of covenant. That is not what was agreed to at the altar when we committed to covenant together. And so... God is reacting to this type of treachery, this type of violence. Because if you think about it, what does covenant mean? Covenant means you don't have to keep your guard or defenses up. Why? Because it's safe. I can trust you and you can trust me. So we don't have to worry about how that's going. And, and when that's... I'm, in covenant, I'm looking out for your best interests. Right? Jesus says what? Love your neighbor as yourself. In covenant, I do that. 
And I do that in faithfulness. When that is violated, God calls it violence. Look at the uh, NASV version of this. God says, I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and in him who covers his garment with wrong. So take heed in your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. The one who plots is being treacherous. The one who is plotted against is being dealt with in a treacherous way, and God says, I hate it. Stop. Now, you have to go pretty far to get, riled, to get God riled up that intensely. God usually doesn't react. God's usually patient. His forbearance, right? We always marvel at that. But there are some places where it crosses the line even for God. And this is one of them. He says in the ESV, guard yourselves in your spirit or in the NASB, take heed. In other words, pay attention. This doesn't uh, translate very well uh, in our, our, our sense of tense or tone in English. Uh, but it could be more understood as God thundering from Mount Sinai. It's that kind of picture of God, right? These are the laws you must obey kind of, kind of way. Uh, stop doing this. Another rebuttal, though, that could be raised is that this is the Old Testament. You know, Mitch, we all know the New Testament God is different than the Old Testament God. We live under a dispensation of grace. So that wouldn't carry across. You know, Malachi just kind of got amped up and uh, put words in the Lord's mouth that he really never meant to communicate quite that way. Now, first of all, let me suggest something. Uh, If we were to say that, we're on dangerous ground anytime we decide that an Old Testament prophet is putting words in the Lord's mouth. Right? Because it's the Lord who put the words in the Old Testament prophet's mouth. Right? If we're going to hold to scriptures inspired. But let's look at the New Testament. Let's, Let's... Let's go to the Gospel of Mark if you've got your Bibles there. Uh, It's also paralleled in the Gospel of Matthew, but Mark chapter 10. And and here we find the Pharisees up to their old tricks. They're trying to catch Jesus in his words. And so this is not a straight up deal. They are plotting to trick him. And it reads like this. And the Pharisees came up in order to test him and asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Like today, as back then, it's a difficult question and they knew it. They were kind of laying Jesus across the tracks, so to speak, hoping to watch him get run over. Full disclosure, they knew divorce wasn't permissible. And we don't know for sure, but they were probably guilty of it themselves. This is speculation, but not fact. But they were in that type of setting, and we know a lot about the Pharisees, and they broke the rules as long as it was in their best interest. So they're probably coming at it from several different layers to see what Jesus is going to do about it. Remember, this is the very same group that threw a woman at Jesus' feet and said, we caught this woman in adultery, what do you say? I always wondered, where was the guy? How come they didn't throw the guy at Jesus' feet? Where were, how come it was just the girl? Which just tells you lots of stuff gets jury-rigged. Don't be surprised. All right? But they were running off a technicality. You ever run off a technicality? Technically speaking, 
You ever done that? Right? They were going off to take that. Moses had permitted it. So, Mr. Big Stuff Jesus, what do you have to say to this? Under Moses, we're allowed to. And they're going back to the law, the giving of Deuteronomy to do that. So where is that being pulled from? Let's look at it really quick. Uh, we're going to jump from Mark to Deuteronomy. It's up here on the screen. Deuteronomy 24. And it says this, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. And she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife. So get the setting. There's a guy. He marries a gal. And it says he found some indecency. It doesn't describe what that indecency is. But he finds her indecent. He then sends her out. And sending her out, that means in polite language, divorcing her. He gives her a certificate of divorce. And we'll talk about that in just a second. But he gives her this certificate of divorce and she walks out and then she marries another guy and becomes another man's wife. All right, now two things here. This issue of indecency, I looked it up, I, I checked in. It's really subjective. Okay, there wasn't anything really laid out as to what that was. There were no clear lines as to what actually constituted indecency. So it became highly subjective. And two... One of the ways that that issue was settled was the issue of the elders. If a matter was brought before the elders and they thought the matter reasonable, then the divorce could proceed. So there was a built-in thing. If you read further in the law, you just couldn't willy-nilly deal. You had to come before the elders, say, here's the situation. They weighed it, and then you had to gain permission. Okay? Also, the certificate was very important, and it was very important for the women. Ladies, you won't like this at all, but back then you were a piece of property. Okay, you weren't a person, you were a piece of property. And as such, if you left the marriage relationship and you went out and got another guy, that would be called adultery and you could be stoned to death for it. So the odds were not in your favor in any way, shape, or form. All right? Totally stacked to the guy's side of the deck. When he gave you a certificate of divorce, what that said is that you were legally given permission that you have been divorced from this man and you have a certificate to prove it, so you are not in adultery, therefore you don't have to die. Right? Pretty important in that culture. And why was that so important? Because it wasn't like today where we all have jobs and you can run out and get a job anywhere you want and you can make your own living and support yourself. This had to do more with a woman dependent on the ability of the community and the ability of a husband to provide for her so she could actually live. So that certificate actually provided a way to life and it became very important, which again tells you God's hearts towards women. He cares about them. Deuteronomy goes on to say this. After she takes another man for a husband and the later man hates her. Oh, she's got a really good track record going here. Right? Guy number one punts her. Guy number two is about to punt her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand, sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies, she took the second husband, the guy passes away. If the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then the former husband, husband number one over here, who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she's been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that your Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. All right? And so it's talking about here 
the issue here of remarriage. And this is where the Pharisees are pulling from, right? When they come to Jesus and say, is it lawful for us to divorce? And Jesus says, well, what did Moses say? He allowed us a certificate, right? So what this is laying out is the second husband releases or dies. She can't go back to the first husband. And so the Pharisees, as I said, are going back to law. Jesus, in an absolutely ingenious way, it's easy for us to miss the brilliance of this. But he, he does something here that's just stunningly smart. He argues not on the basis of the second covenant, right? The second covenant, the covenant of the law given by Moses, but rather on the first covenant was made at the beginning of creation with Adam and Eve and the creation count in Genesis. He said, all right, if you want to argue covenants, you're coming off of the law, let's go back to the original covenant and how it was made. He jumps back to beginnings. And what Jason... Uh, what Jesus is basically saying is, do you want to get back to covenants? Well, then let's go back to the first one. Watch the shift in line of thinking that takes place here. Jesus said to them, now we're back to Mark 10, so if you never moved, you're right there. Jesus said to them, because of the hardness, your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus jumps the track on the discussion and goes back to the beginning. He says, how did God create him? Male and female. And when a man marries his wife, he leaves his mom and dad, and he cleaves to her, and they start a new family. Right? And he says, therefore... Notice what he says here. Jesus says it's not what that couple brought together and their vows to each other, but it says what God has brought together, let no man separate. And so the fundamental understanding of marriage has to be that God brought us together. I always remind Pam that I am the answer to her prayers. You can see the irony of that very quickly, right? We are very imperfect people. Very imperfect people. But God works through that. What? To carve out our selfishness, to carve out our self-indulgence, actually make us grow up, become mature. But we like to short-circuit that process, and so did the Pharisees. What I like about this is Jesus, instead of carrying a big club, Jesus speaks very evenly and logically. Well, what did Moses do? Right? right? He's, He's walking through it. What he's saying to them is, <coughs> excuse me, you're on the right track tec- technically, but you're very wrong in terms of original intent. Uh, let me, I wanted to try to capture this for us. Ray Johnson has written a book on hope, and as a staff, we're going through it. Uh, Ray's a longtime youth guy that's now the head guy uh, down in Sacramento, California at a large church called Bayside. And uh, Ray relates this story that he was flying uh, into Florida, this tone that Jesus uses, I wanted to give a picture of that. So he's flying into Florida, and if you've ever been in Florida, it can be unbearably hot and sticky, right? Humid, just bleh, right? Take a shower, two minutes later, you're worse than when you went into the shower, right? And uh, he was uh, speaking at a conference, and so the conference center was located on this, on this beautiful lake. And so Ray decided to go straight for a swim. Let's just get in the water, right, and go. 
And uh, on the dock, he says he saw this old timer who kind of looked like someone right out of Duck Dynasty, you know, big facial hair, sitting there on a rocker, man a few words. And Ray looks at him and says, looks like a pretty hot day. Yep. Is this like this a lot here? Yep. Live here a long time? Yep. He says he turned his back on Mr. Chatterbox, took his shirt off and was about ready to dive in when Mr. Personality actually spoke a complete sentence. Wouldn't do that. Really? Why not? Is it against the conference center rules or something? Nope. He said he just stood there waiting to know why and the old timer says, you're about to jump into the number two most alligator infested lake in Florida. And Ray says, hadn't noticed anything dangerous, but when I turned around to look again, he said, I saw literally somewhere between 8 and 12 alligators, some as close as 15 feet to the dock, all staring at me. (laughs) And he says, you know what they were thinking? Lunch. Thanks, man, I said, Ray, scrambling back into my shirt. Uh, Is this really the number two infested alligator lake in Florida? And he said, it seemed like the old guy wanted to teach the California kid a lesson, so he looked straight in his eyes and he said, yep, number two most infested alligator lake in Florida. And then he paused and grinned, but it only takes one. Jesus and this old boy from Florida both knew you don't have to always yell to get your point across. Jesus had made a stunning point with the Pharisees and they they knew it. But they also missed it. So where does this leave us? Because obviously in Jesus' time and Malachi's time, divorce was something that was part of the cultural fabric that was going on. It was part of what they wrestled with. Um, I just want a couple things here. We won't be able to do the whole deal, but let's, let's just walk through this thing. There are some legitimate reasons for divorce. All right? And also I want to say, very strongly, there are legitimate victims of divorce. I know many, many people who never ever thought of divorce, never wanted divorce, never planned a divorce, and they are sitting in a church, divorced, and never knew what hit them because the other person plotted against them. There are some reasons in Scripture given. One, an unbeliever is married to a believer, and the unbeliever doesn't want to put up with the Jesus stuff anymore, and so they walk. And, Jesus, and scripture says on that account, you're free. You don't have to worry about it. Also, sexual immorality. All right, that has gotten enormously complicated. That used to simply mean adultery. Right? If someone committed adultery, had sex with someone else who's not your marriage partner, that was uh, a reason that you could have a biblical divorce. That has gotten enormously complicated with electronic technology. What constitutes adultery this day and age? Yeah, it's a tough... uh, You just went... I know why you went... Because I've had the same problem. How do you wrestle with that? Where where does that line cross? Um, Some other reasons. Lack of providing. Scripture says if you're a husband and you don't provide for your family, you're worse than an infidel. And you're supposed to take care of your family. There's some other categories as well. Abusiveness, right? Um, emotional, spiritual, physical. Uh, by the way, this can get really abused itself. 
Oh, I'm being abused. Well, according to who? But it's also been a sad legacy of the church when people come and said, I'm being abused and nobody believed the person. Hey, right? So it's tough. Physical danger. If the, uh, the wife or husband are in danger of losing life or the children, you have to get out of that situation. You don't sit there and hope the Holy Spirit answers your prayer. The prayer is move. Get out of there, all right? Uh, and chronic addiction, which kicks back to all three of these because chronic addiction can become really tough. So for legitimate or not legitimate reasons, uh, in America, we have over 875,000 divorces every year. Here's the good news. The rate's been dropping. It's been dropping consistently for the last three years. And our much maligned millennial friends, guess what? You're one of the more faithful generations and your group has less divorces than our group does, the older people. You're actually turning the counter on that. So there's actually some good news there. And by the way, if you're struggling with this issue and and want to have godly discernment, right? If your marriage is on the rocks, one of the things that's laid out in Scripture still works for today. One of the things that they did was they came before the elders with the situation. And that still can be done today. That's why we have elders in a church and you can come and lay out the situation before the elders and have the elders pray for you on it. And uh, we offer that here. And if you're in that spot, please take advantage of that. But here's the problem. Divorces are a symptom. They're a symptom, an indicator of a deeper issue. What's the virus? What's the, what's the actual disease itself? What's the cause? Jesus gives us a clue in Matthew's verses. What sets in motion so many sinful symptoms that we see in our world today? And here's what Jesus said in Matthew 10, and we're not going to be impressed by it. Jesus said this, It's because of your hardness of heart that he wrote you this commandment. Hardness of heart. What does that look like? What does that feel like? What is that specifically? Well, think of a callus, right? If I sit up here and thump and do that, that's going to hurt after about 10 seconds. But if I do that every day, or I'm a guitar player, or a banjo player, or a bass player, or somebody else who does things like that, after a while, what's going to develop on my fingertip? A callus. When I bang, am I going to feel that anymore? No. Well, in that case, like in working man's hands, calluses are helpful and useful. They protect your hands. But in this case of uh, having a hardness of heart, a calloused heart, it's not a good thing. And in Malachi, a specific form of hardening was taking place that I think we will be able to relate to. Their hearts were being hardened to the point where they could no longer hear from or see the Lord working around them. So what was it? What is it that was causing what Jesus called uh, this hardness of heart? And it's two old nemesis that, that we are familiar with that popped their ugly heads again. First one's envy, and the second one is covetousness. You ever heard of those two? Look at Malachi 2.17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Literally, that wearied means worn out. Okay? You have wearied or worn out the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied Him? We were praying. 
How, did that, how could that weary the Lord out? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of the justice? So what's the attack? What's the mindset? Here it is. Evil people are getting ahead and they're winning. It used to be thought of, uh, even in our country, that the way to get ahead was to be good, to be honest, to do things right, to seek the Lord's blessing. And many of you have probably done that throughout the course of your life. I know I've tried to do that, right? And as you've done that, as you've been good and holy and righteous and faithful, you've kind of looked over and seen a bunch of other people getting away with stuff. Not only are they not getting away with it, but they're not getting hit with lightning. And they don't break out with leprosy. And they don't just drop dead. Matter of fact, they seem to be having a lot of fun. Little dirt balls. It's getting away with it. Like, wait a minute, hold on here a second. What's, what's, what's going on? The prosperity of the wicked. And what Israel had done is watched the nations around and said, you know what, they don't follow our God and they're, they're getting ahead. They got more stuff, better stuff. Man, it looks like they're living the high life. Like, wow. If I, matter of fact, I know if I stick with the Lord, I can't do that stuff. How come they get away with it? That ever chaff you? That ever sit there and irritate in your soul? That's been a, a long-standing issue in the Christian life. Look with me at Psalm 73. Let's answer this this morning. Psalm 73 starts out like this. It says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost stumbled. So we're talking about a, a believer, a follower of God, who's watching this stuff and says, yeah, I know God's good, but I just about biffed it. Said, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Any of you think about that $1.57 billion Powerball lottery thing and how you'd spend it if you want it? Man, I could get that. Buddy, I could do stuff for the kingdom. Yeah. Here's what the psalmist goes on to say. He says, For they don't have any pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. That's the exact same term that Malachi uses. Their pr- violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell through fatness, their hearts overflow. In other words, they have the good life. They have all they want to eat. They're not thin. They're not famished. They're healthy. They're rolling along. They get away with what they want. It says, their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Think of what's going on in our world just now today with people who are against Jesus, against his gospel, against his kingdom, against his resurrection, against his promises, against his claims. Let's think what's going on. Is it not that they strut through the earth making boast and claims? And this is irritating the psalmist to death. Why are they getting away with it? Come on. That's not... 
No, the righteous should prosper and the wicked should be mush. And the wicked are prospering and I'm mush. And I don't like it because I want to win. Any competitive people out there? Right? I want to win. So let's cut some corners. Remember Malachi? They were cheating. They were cutting corners. The offerings wasn't first and best. It was last, middle, somewhere down in the bottom. After a while, it wasn't anything. The psalmist says this then, goes on to say this. Therefore, his people turned back to them. They turned back, away from God, back to the ungodly. And they don't find any fault with them. Yeah, that's the right way to do it. We're going to join you. And they say, how can God know? Is there any knowledge in the Most High? Come on, haven't you ever thought once, how many billion people are there on this planet? I think it's like seven billion now, right in that ballpark somewhere, right? How can God possibly know the thoughts and intentions of the heart of seven billion different people? Hmm. Really? Okay, maybe not. Right? And suddenly you go, Ah, well, you know what? If those other 7 billion are getting away with it, maybe I can get away with it too. I think I might like to try that. Why? I'm not sure God really knows. And besides, I'm not very important. He won't be paying attention to me. I'll just do my little thing and everybody else and I'll just come to church and it really won't matter. Nobody will know, including God. The psalmist goes on, Behold, these are the wicked... They always at ease and they increase in riches. And here's the trump card right here. The psalmist nails it. Look what he says. All in vain have I kept my heart clean. What has it benefited me to walk with God? Nothing. Notice the all in there? It's all in vain. And I've washed my hands I've kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. It's benefited me nothing. For all day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, and here's the anchor line in this whole psalm, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I thought about how to understand this, the psalmist goes, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of the Lord. In other words, the old verse, be still and know I'm God. In other words, the psalmist, what did he do? He had a quiet time. Got back in the Word. Looked at it again. Slowed his heart down. Slowed his brain down. Got back into the Word and looked at it from God's perspective. And then he said, it was wearisome until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places and you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, and that embitteredness, understand, means towards the Lord. When I was embittered against the Lord, when I was thus pricked in heart. Isn't that a great phrase, pricked in heart? I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. And then here come those famous, famous words. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Oh, I kind of forgot. You know what? 
Jesus is his own reward. I don't need the stuff. I forgot. I got away from that. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Behold, those who are far from you shall perish, and you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it's good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all of your works. You ever gotten envious of the wicked? You ever gotten covetousness of what they had or getting away with? You ever been pricked in your heart and thought like a beast in front of the Lord and accused the Lord that he doesn't know and he's not fair? Yeah, we do, don't we? And the psalmist says, boy, it took some thinking to turn the course. What was he saying? I got hardened heart. I, I, I stonewalled up. I was having a tough time. And I was about to do some stuff that would have made total sense in my hardness of heart until I went back and spent time with the Lord. And all of a sudden I realized I'm thinking like an insane person. He says, I'm thinking on the level of an animal. Not thinking Logically, I'm not thinking rationally. I'm certainly not thinking spiritually or covenantally or faithfully towards the Lord. I was like a beast in front of him. And what does he say? And thank God God wasn't like me. God still stayed faithful. You ever seen God be faithful to you when you've been at your worst? Right? right. Hardness of heart. It's not a sin that we give too much credence to. It's not a sin that we think about much. But hardening up in this sense, when your heart gets hard to the Lord, is a deadly, deadly situation. And we have to recognize that. You can recognize it, as Malachi says, with the symptoms. And you can recognize it with envy and covetousness that war in your heart. Is Jesus enough? Let's pray. Father, this hits really close to how we live. And it hits really close to our heart condition. Malachi nailed it. And you nailed it with the hardness of heart issue. We come this morning, the, my friends who are here came to be softened up. We do not want to be hard of heart. We do not want to instigate things and... and take steps into things that would cause your dislike and your curse actually to come upon us. We want to be faithful like you've been faithful. And we recognize sometimes we get tricked and deceived by watching other people who aren't following you and it seems they're really getting ahead. And we can become envious of that, thinking we're supposed to win because we're the Christian and often we forget you didn't really win when you were down here either. And that our way is your way and that's the way of the cross that we have to die to ourselves. Pick up your cross and carry it daily. And sometimes we just get tired of carrying that thing around. And then our hearts get hard. And then we're in deep trouble. Many of us may be doing very well this morning. Lord, but for, if there's anyone here this morning who instantly recognizes it and goes, Bing, that's me. I am sitting here this morning and I am hard 
in my heart. And I recognize it. Lord, may you supply abundant grace for repentance and turning and softening back up towards you. And we seek you for that to minister to us in that way. We ask this in your name. Amen.